Please keep your Bibles open at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. You know, when I was younger, as a young Christian, there were many great things I dreamt of doing for the Lord. Uh, the thing I, I enjoyed doing was reading Christian biography, and I would be so inspired, and I would pray, and I would desire, yes, God, please set me apart uh, to do great things for you as well. But as I got older, as I lived the Christian life longer, my aspirations have changed a bit. So that, uh, you know, coming back from Batam, sitting next to Shuan on the ferry, she was telling me about her elderly friends in Melbourne, I think. And she stayed with them for a few days, and she described how they take 20 minutes to wear their shoes because they are so old. And the reason why they are putting on their shoes is so that they can go out and go out and visit friends and especially visit their elderly neighbors who have yet to come to Christ. And so taking that time each day slowly, putting on the shoes, you know, going out to look for an opportunity to point to Christ, to share Christ with their friends. So you see, as I get older, as I've lived the Christian life a bit longer, this, this is what I want, most of all now. I mean, if the Lord calls me to do great things, if He uses me as an instrument to do great things, you know, so be it. That's, that's, his, that's His will, that's His prerogative. But what, what I want, most of all, is to be like Schwann's elderly friends and be like them in the sense that at the end of my life, I'm still running the race for Christ. At the end of my life, I'm still pursuing Christ, seeking Him. What I want most of all is to finish the race holding on to Christ. And that's what I want most of all for Maria. That's what I want most of all for my kids. Is that what you want most of all for yourself? I mean, just, you know, take a moment, think, you know, like the things that you desire, things that you really long for, yearn for. Is it to persist till the end, still confessing, still bowing the knee to the Lord Jesus? And as you came today, is this what you want most of all for the person sitting next to you? The people in your small group, the people that you chatted to this morning before the meeting started. Is that what you want most of all for yourself and for those around you? Now the letter of 2 Thessalonians which we are starting on today and over the next few weeks, this letter is given to help us make it to the end. And so, uh, let's ask God to help us as we begin looking at His Word. Let's pray together. Our Father, You know our needs. You know that in reality, what we want most of all is often so far from Your agenda in Your Word. So please, by Your Spirit working through your powerful word. Bring us back again to see reality as it is. 
Help us not to be deceived by uh, what the world says, what the world sirens as most important. Please open our eyes so that we may yearn and desire and long for the things that are most important. Father, help us see that there are many things standing in our way and that we need to lean on you and trust you that you will take us home, that you are bringing us home. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Paul is the one who founded the church in Thessalonica, and we we read the account in Acts chapter 17. And Paul and his companions were going there after a very hard stint in Philippi. And when they reached Thessalonica, the people responded positively. They wanted to know and they believed. But there was another group, and especially the religious Jews who were very against the calling of Jesus as Lord and God. And so they reacted violently, drove Paul and his companions out. And so at most, Paul stayed at Thessalonica maybe four weeks And so we studied 1 Thessalonians, which was most likely Paul's first letter uh, to the young church in Thessalonica. And Timothy, most likely, is the one who brought the letter there and has returned and updated Paul with what's happening. And so 2 Thessalonians is Paul's response to the updated situation Timothy has brought to him. And in 2 Thessalonians, we see that there are three challenges Uh, the young church is facing. Here in chapter 1, we see that they are facing persecution and trials. The people that drove Paul and his companions out were most likely the ones still persecuting the young church. And we will see in chapter 2 that they were also facing false teaching. And false teaching of the nature that said the day of the Lord had already come. Jesus has already returned. And, you know, so, so it's confusing them and they are thrown into perplexity. Oh, it's return and why is it still like that? And so there's another challenge that they are facing. And in chapter 3, we will see that one other challenge is a challenge of within their midst, people who call themselves Christians, uh, parts of the church acting in an irresponsible manner. And this was having a negative effect on the rest of the church. And so Paul is writing to deal with these challenges. These challenges that I think you can easily imagine could derail a young church, could cause Christians to not make it to the end, not finish the race faithfully holding on to Christ. And so Paul is writing to deal with this, that they may be helped by God and by his word that they persist and make it to the end. And so if that by any measure is your concern this morning, then please you know, join me as we, we give our attention to this word. And in chapter 1, you know, chapter 1 is, is the greeting, is the thanksgiving and prayer section. I mean, every first century letter will begin this way. You know, the greeting you know, is from Paul, it's written to you all, and you know, it always begins with, oh, we give thanks to you and we pray this for you. It'll always follow this convention. But you see how in the hands of the Apostle Paul, even that conventional 
thanksgiving and prayer, it is turned by him into something purposeful. Because he knows the challenges they are facing and he, he doesn't want to waste a moment, as it were. So even in this greeting and thanksgiving section, he is addressing the issue. Even in this thanksgiving and prayer, he is writing to encourage them that they may persist to the end. So you see with me the first point in your bulletin, uh, verses 3 to 4 especially. Giving them encouragement through knowing what God is doing in us. I mean, actually it's in them, I know, but you know, because it's in us, because what God is doing in us as well should act as encouragement. Now you see there in verse 4, Paul explicitly saying the challenge that they are facing. They are facing persecutions and trials. Now I want to work backwards from this reality how Paul is seeking to encourage them. So this is what they're facing, being persecuted for their faith and facing all kinds of trials in general. And in face of this persecution and trials, you see in verse 4, they are expressing perseverance and faith. In the face of suffering, they are expressing perseverance, steadfastness. They are still holding on. Now, how does Paul know that they are persevering? The answer is in what he says in verse 3. And what he says in verse 3 is he says their faith is growing and their love is increasing. You see, the reason why he knows that they are persevering, the reason why he knows, it's not because they continue to show up at church and that's it. The reason he knows they are persevering is because their faith is growing. They they continue to believe that Jesus has really come, that he is the, the Son of God. And he died a real death that took care of the real consequences of their sins. That they they really believe that he rose again. They really believe that his resurrection means new life and eternity for them. They really believe, and this is growing and showing itself. And their love for one another is increasing. Just even though they personally may be feeling pain, they themselves have been persecuted, but as they gather together, they are other-centered. They self-sacrificially put the other person first. There's real forgiveness, real bearing of each other's burdens. Their love is increasing. See, so the point is that growing faith the increasing love. That is a true sign, a real indicator of their perseverance. And now the question is, where did their growing faith and increasing love come from? You see that in verse 3. Paul says he thanks God. Now obviously he thanks God because Paul is convinced that God is the one who is doing this work in them And I pray in us. So the love and faith that is a sign of perseverance in the face of trials, ultimately it comes from God, God who is doing that work in them. And so this is encouragement. He's saying to them, you you are actually doing well. And the reason why you're doing well is because God, God is at work in you. You're not 
by your own strength and self-effort gritting your teeth. Now, sometimes it feels that way, doesn't it? That it feels we are alone. That it feels it's all up to you. You don't make it. If you don't persevere by your own strength, oh, that's it, it's gone for you. No, no, no. The reality is that it is God. God who is doing this work in them, in His people. So that baby steps as they walk forward. They wake up each morning and they still persevere in believing and seeking to love. All that is from God. Great encouragement to persevere. Now some of us, we hear that and we go, wow, that's great. That's, that's great for the Thessalonians. But I myself, I don't feel that I have growing faith. I don't feel as if I am increasing in love. And so, what you say about God working in them, that's great for them. But what about me? I don't feel this growing faith, increasing love. But I want to say to you that the growing faith and increasing love is an evidence, but it is not the only evidence that God is at work. Now the fact is, if you're here, even though there were many things that were pulling you away, there were you know, many things that were probably, possibly stopping you from coming here, the fact that you're here, the fact that you keep trying. You know that Yoda quote, do or do not, there is no try. You know that famous Yoda quote. Um, I mean, what does Yoda know? No, trying, the fact that you keep trying in itself, the fact that you haven't given up, you know, whatever it is, you know, whether it's seeking to get your work-life balance so that you can, you can actually come here, make it on a Sunday and, and you're awake and all that. I mean, the fact that you, you may have kept failing and failing, but you keep trying. The fact that you may have been trying to read the Bible with your kids, but, you know, they're always so rowdy or, you know, something happens, they fall sick. But, but that's your intention. The fact you keep trying, the fact that you, you wake up in the morning and you keep trying. You want to read the Bible, you want to pray, but something happens. But, but you keep trying, even though you keep failing. But the fact that you keep trying, that is evidence that God is at work. And if God is at work, then be encouraged. Be encouraged to persevere because the fact that you haven't given up, that is God at work in us. That's what we should be really thankful about. I mean, as we come here, I mean, you know, the fact that we have aircon, we got a, we own the building, many things we could be thankful for, but the main thing we should be thankful for that God is at work in us, causing us to persevere. Now moving on to verses 5 to 10, Paul encourages them by causing them to look to God's judgment. Encouragement through looking <clears throat> to God's judgment. The link between their persecution and God's judgment is there in verse 5. Paul says, All this 
All this is evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. So what is the all this? The all this is their perseverance. Their perseverance in the face of suffering. So all this is evidence. Their perseverance in the face of suffering is evidence that God's judgment is right. God's judgment that these people will be counted worthy of His kingdom. That's the judgment God has made. That not because they have made themselves worthy, but rather God has counted, God has made them worthy, God has appointed them. You see, the ones that God has chosen, He has equipped. He is now at work in them, causing them to persevere. And so this shows that God is right to so appoint them and to count them worthy of His kingdom. Now, all this is you know, easy for us to say as we sit here and we sit here not worried at all that there will be police or soldiers coming in or religious extremists coming in to gun us down or to bring us to jail, you know, especially the ones who wear ties that they think might be the leaders. You know. um, I, I mean, I, I stand here and Andrew sits there. Andrew, Andrew and Andrew, we all sit there without any fear of that happening. But you know it's different for Christians in other countries. And so just to mention the video we saw in the prayer meeting, where one of our sisters in the faith, in prison simply because she was a believer. And in that country, they put Christians in a shipping container out in the sun as a form of torture, as a way to get them to recant. And the video described the torture she went through, being beaten. And if that was what was happening to you, I mean, it would be tempting to think, why? God, where are you? Why are things so unfair? Where is the justice of it all? And so in verse 6, Paul gives the reassurance. Yes, you are going through suffering now. Yes, it is tempting to cry out to God for justice, crying and wondering whether justice will come, whether God is fair. But verse 6, Paul says, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. He will. Yes, now at this present moment, that sister in Christ I was talking about being beaten, left for dead. But the people responsible for that they will not get away. God will pay back. I mean, that term, I mean, it, it, it sort of sounds so vindictive. You know, like, yeah, is this even right? But no, God, God's justice, God's punishment is retributive. He will give retribution. He will pay back trouble to those who have caused His people trouble. And those who are now suffering for their faith. 
the time will come when they will experience great relief. And I mean, I'm sure the comfort of these words are in proportion to the level of trouble we are now going through. If you're not going through much trouble, then we read this and we go, okay, that's good. But if you are a Christian, and even in Singapore, there are persecution, not of that same sort, but there are other forms of persecution. And if you are a genuine Christian in any measure, you will go through suffering and persecution. And how comforting are these words now? The day will come when there will be eternal relief in the kingdom of God because by our steadfastness that God has created in us to have in the face of suffering, we are shown to be worthy of that kingdom and we will be in that kingdom experiencing His eternal rest forever. But those who have troubled us, there will be that eternal payback. God's righteous judgment will bring about the ultimate resolution. Every score will be settled. You know, at this moment, it's like looking at a, at a, a piece of uh, jigsaw. And then, you know, there's a piece that's not in place. You know, something's missing. You know, like Maria, whenever the kids finish playing with the jigsaw and there's one piece missing, she will turn the whole house upside down to look for that piece because she's so unsettled that there's one piece missing. And so life in this world now is a bit like that. That is so unsettling. There's, there's, there's not something not right. But Paul is promising that when God's righteous judgment comes, everything will be put right. Everything will be back in its rightful place. Now, at the mention of God's righteous judgment, there are all sorts of questions that will be raised in uh, their minds and hearts and our minds and hearts. And so Paul continues to answer questions about God's righteous judgment. And the first question he answers there in the middle of verse 7 is a question of when. When will this happen? Now, remember, they were facing the false teaching that the day of the Lord had already come. And so Paul, even here, he corrects that false teaching by saying, no, no, God's righteous judgment will take place in the future. In the future when Christ returns. So verse 7, this will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. You see, when he comes back the second time, he will not come as a gentle lamb, meek and mild. No, he will return with blazing fire, which is a way of describing his consuming holiness. The way Malachi put it is, the Lord will return and He will come with refiner's fire. Now, it might be helpful for us to turn to Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, and see in Malachi chapter 4 a description of that day. Malachi chapter 4, verse 1. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. But for you, 
who revere my name. The sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays, and you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. Then you will trample on the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty. Now you notice that the person speaking in Malachi chapter 4 here is uh, Lord with all capitals, which is the English Bible's way of referencing Yahweh, God's own personal name. So here in Malachi chapter 4 is Yahweh, the covenant God who says he will act this way, that when that day comes, this is what will happen. And the Lord, the Yahweh, in 2 Thessalonians, we find will be Jesus himself. Jesus is that Lord. And when he returns, it will be with blazing fire. And he says he will come with his powerful angels. His angels who will do his bidding. His angels who will go across the whole face of the earth. There will be no one who will escape. There will be no one, none of his people who are facing suffering who will be forgotten, left behind. His powerful angels will make sure everyone will be either in the line of the sheep or in the line of goats. It will happen when the Lord Jesus returns. Now verse 8 answers the question of who, who will be punished. When that day comes, verse 8, He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. You see, the question on that day will not be, were you a regular church goer? The question on that day will not be, did you do any good things in God's name? No, no, the question will be, do you know God? Did you obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus? Now, I want to help you see that it is not two questions, but it is in fact one question. It's two sides to the same coin. Because there is no way to know God except by obeying the gospel. And when you truly obey the gospel, then you come to truly know God. Because the gospel is about the good news of what God has done in the Lord Jesus. And the, the implicit command in the gospel is repent. Stop running your own way. But come, trust in what Christ has done. And it is in obeying the gospel, coming and seeing God revealed in Jesus that we can, in fact, truly know God. And so it is those who have rejected, rejected the gospel and persecuted God's people who will be punished. And so this leads, of course, to what the punishment will be. What will be the punishment when Jesus returns? Verse 9 answers that question. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. Now there are Christians who come to this teaching about hell, and this is what it is, and will leave with different conclusions. 
there will be Christians who will come and they will say, yes, yes, hell is real, but surely it will not last forever. Yes, yes, the word everlasting is there, but, but so is the word destruction as well. And so if, if destruction means destruction, then yes, hell will be bad, hell will be, will be terrible, but the day will come when they will be tormented so much that they will be destroyed. So their suffering will not be forever. But then there will be another group that will come and they will see, hey, but then the word everlasting is there. And they will notice that this word for everlasting is the same word that describes everlasting life. So if hell is not everlasting, then neither will heaven be. And so, but we know heaven is everlasting. And so the conclusion we must come to is that this punishment in hell is everlasting. And the destruction here is not that they will be annihilated, but rather the destruction is a word that describes every good thing being taken away from them. You see, this is something that no one has yet experienced. Even as the most hardened God-hater, Satan-worshipper, whatever, that person still lives in God's good will. The Lord causes the rain to shine, the sun to shine, the rain to fall on, on everyone. And so everyone on this earth still experiences something of God's provision. But the day will come when they will face destruction, when every good thing will be taken away from them so that all that is left is a shriveled existence, a torment and suffering that goes on and on and on. And Jonathan Edwards tried to help his people understand by saying, I mean, just, just, just imagine the suffering and torment that goes on. Day after day, it goes on. Age after age, it goes on with no glimmer of hope that it will ever end. And none of your cries for help will ever reach the years of God. And on and on it goes for an eternity. And some, that's why some Christians can, will react to this. I mean, even the late John Stott, such a faithful and good Bible teacher, he had the view that no, no, hell, hell cannot be eternal. God will put an end to it. Because his sensitive conscience was reacting to this. And so Christians will say, but it, I mean, it's, it's, it's unfair. Right? I mean, it was only a lifetime of sin, only a lifetime of rebellion, but why is it a, an eternity of suffering? But we need to understand that the time it takes to commit the crime, it's not the same as the time the crime is due. It takes only a few minutes to kill someone. But the crime, we will have to pay the time of many, many years in jail. And we must also understand that when we, you know, sin against each other, you know, we are sinning against someone that is our peer on the same level as us, against finite creatures as well. But when we sin and rebel against God, against an infinite holy, majestic being. Then in God's righteous judgment, 
the punishment that fits the crime is everlasting ruination in hell. Okay, I have to move on. What is the purpose, finally, of God's judgment? And we see that in verse 10. On the day He comes, He comes to be glorified in His holy people and to be marveled at among those who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. See, this is the outcome. This is the purpose of God's righteous judgment. That He and His Son will get the glory. That He and His Son will be marveled at by His people. Now, you see, one of the questions that you know, we can ask is, you know, what you said about hell, what the Bible teaches about hell, I mean, how can I, if I'm in heaven, how can there be real happiness, real joy in heaven, if I know my loved ones who did not obey the gospel are now facing that in hell? You know, how, I mean, and, and it's a question we can understand. But what Paul is promising us here is when that day comes, we will be able to see with perfect eyes the rightness of God's judgment. We will be able to see that, yes, he got everything right and marvel, marvel at his righteous judgment and give him the glory because he got everything absolutely and exactly right. Now Paul tells them and tells us all this so that in the face of persecution, and as I said, if you are going to be a Christian for any length of time, you're going to be a Christian that is genuine about living out your faith. You know, you're not just here on a Sunday playing games. Then you will face persecution because we live in a world where there are many who hate God who have the power. And so there is great encouragement now as we look ahead that God will judge. God will make everything right. And we move on to the third point. In his closing prayer in this first chapter, he gives them encouragement to press on. Now there's a word missing from your outline, and that is the word now. Yeah, I purposely left it out so that I can say it here. It's encouragement to press on now. Now, where you are now, whatever you're doing now, press on. See, he tells them, with this in mind, we constantly pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling, and that by his power he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. See, he's encouraging them to press on now by telling them what he prays for them. And can you see what I mean? What he prays for them is something that is repeated throughout the letter. You know, to do something. Not just sit around and hope for the best, but actually do something, right? 
by God's power, he prays, God may bring to fruition your every desire for good, that he may bring about your every deed that's prompted by faith. He wants them to do something in light of their faith. He wants them to do something that's consistent with what they believe. He's praying for that. And the reason why he wants them to do something is because that's what encouragement does. You see, I know, I, I do it myself. You know, I read a book, or I come back from a conference, or I hear a song, and people ask me, how was it? And I'll say, yeah, that was really encouraging. Right? You say that, right? And you watch a video, you know, a Christian suffering and persevering, and yeah, that was so encouraging. But if that's all that has happened, then it's actually not encouraging. Because the word encouragement is to give strength, to give comfort so that you do something. The word encouragement is not a, a feeling that you get, a warm feeling in your heart. Oh, that was encouraging. No, when you have received encouragement, the result is you actually take steps forward. It results in you doing something. So if what you said was encouraging did not spur you on to take any steps forward, then in effect it wasn't encouraging in actuality. And so Paul means for what he has said to be encouraging. And so he wants them to do. Do now what is prompted by your faith. Do now what God has put in your heart to desire, to want to do for Him. And why is it important to do now? Why is it important to act on your faith now? Because it is acting on your faith now that will ensure when the end comes, you are still persisting and holding on to Him. It is not only at the end when you are 80 and then you are lying in bed and you realize, oh man, I've called myself a Christian all these years. I've attended church, but, but I know in my heart of hearts I... I've not really lived in light of my faith. And so, so okay, what should I do now to show that I'm really a Christian? Oh yeah, I can go and visit my neighbors and tell them about Jesus. And then you get up, and then after 10 minutes, you tie one shoe, then you, oh, this is too difficult. I'm not going to do this. I'll, I'll do it tomorrow. You see what has happened? Because there hasn't been that lifetime of now, now acting on our faith, that, that now persevering, that now taking that one step forward. When the line comes, what is going to be your guarantee? What is going to be your hope that you will pass, finish that race, still holding on? If now we're not holding on, now we're not acting in faith. Because what is most important, what I hope we want most of all, is to finish that race. And to do so depending on God, that God is the one who will do that work in us. And now as we want to act on our faith, live out being a Christian, it is that God, by His power, who will accomplish that good work in us. Even though we will keep failing, but we keep trying and we keep trusting. And may God help us
to make it to the end. Amen.